Welcome back to Adventures in Theater History. Over the past few episodes, we have primarily been detailing the story of Philadelphia theater in the early to mid-19th century. You no doubt noticed that this was a very male-centered narrative. We talked about William Warren and William Wood, about George Frederick Cook and Edmund Keane, about John Bill Ricketts, Thomas Wignell, and Edwin Forrest, and This hasn't just been a failing of my admittedly male historian's brain. In the time period we've been discussing so far, men dominated the theatrical professions, from circus performers and acrobats up through clowns, comedians, scenery painters, and tragedians. Almost all the Philadelphia playwrights we've been discussing were men. The contemporary historians and chroniclers we've been quoting from were men. And we've talked about how even the audience sitting in the seats at the Chestnut and Walnut Street theaters were primarily men. This was true in American and European theaters generally in that period, but it was even more true in New York and in Philadelphia than elsewhere. Theater, in fact, was not regarded as what we would now call a safe space for women at all, and female theater artists were morally and socially suspect, mostly quite unjustly. Over the next few episodes, I'm going to try to explore how that began to change in American theater as female actors, female stars, and eventually female managers and playwrights began to take a larger role and change the very nature of the art form. Today, we begin studying this exciting change with the story of Fanny Kemble, and then we will move on to other significant figures such as Louise Elaine Drew and Charlotte Cushman. As usual, we are going to concentrate on what was going on in Philadelphia in particular, but this was a larger trend in American culture and society. And I'm happy to announce that instead of only my voice being used to undertake this important task, I have the honor of sharing with you the talents of one of the finest Philadelphia actors working today, Jessica Bedford, who will be doing the voice of Fanny Kemble when we quote her words directly. I couldn't possibly be more pleased about Jess agreeing to help us out today. Believe me, you are all in for a treat. Speaking of delightful experiences, if you go right now to the Academy of the Fine Arts on Broad Street in Philadelphia, you can see three portraits of Fanny Kemble by the artist Thomas Sully. They're all opposite wall from Sully's portrait of George Frederick Cook as Richard III that we talked about so much back in episode 10. Again, I put some photos of these paintings on the website. On the wall of the Academy, they are labeled Fanny Kemble as Bianca, Fanny Kemble as Isabella, and Fanny Kemble as Beatrice. In these three paintings, we see a vivacious young woman with pale skin, dark hair, dark eyes, and a long neck. In all of them, we can see that, although Sally tries to disguise it a little, that Fanny Kemble had large-ish hands and strong arms and shoulders, quite athletic-looking, really. 
which was most unusual for depictions of women in that day. And in each portrait, she seems to be on the verge of speech, like she wants to say something to us quite pointed and direct. Who exactly was this remarkable-looking person? Frances Anne Kemble lived from 1809 to 1893. Although she was English by birth, she spent significant amounts of her life in the city of Philadelphia. Indeed, Philadelphia was to prove both the scene of some of her greatest professional triumphs and personal happinesses, but it was also to be the place where she suffered for years in despair, depression, and frustration. She was a member of the greatest English theatrical family of her day. The Kembles had ruled the London stage for decades. Her grandfather, Roger Kemble, was a provincial actor and theatre manager, and he married an Irish actress, Sally Ward, and that couple had 13 children together, a great many of whom ended up on the stage, part of the burgeoning world of transatlantic English language theatre that we have been documenting over the course of this podcast. The Kembles were all known for their their tall stature, their elegant good looks, the classically mannered elocution, and the oldest daughter, Sarah, became the leading tragic actress of her day, known by her married name as Mrs. Siddons. She portrayed all the great tragic roles of the stage over the course of her lifetime, and was said to inspire Sidonmania, a type of frantic hysteria in her fans, who would faint and scream in the audience at her most thrilling speeches and moments. Her only rival in terms of fame was her brother, John Philip Kimball, who was the most successful leading tragedian in London, and who rose to become the manager and part owner of the Covent Garden Theatre, even as he was the star attraction of its stage. Another brother, Stephen Kimball, was an actor and managed the Theatre Royal in the city of Newcastle. Two other Kimball sisters, Anne and Elizabeth, spent time performing in the provinces and in America. Indeed, for many years, Elizabeth Kimball, under the name Mrs. Whitlock, was a distinguished member of Thomas Wignell's company at the New Theatre on Chestnut Street in Philadelphia in the 1790s and early 1800s. Charles Kimball was the youngest son of the family, and he was the last one to go on the stage, though also quite tall and handsome himself, with the famous Aquilin Kemble nose. He had an admittedly rather weak voice. Charles, in fact, was known mostly as a highly capable second lead, the Laertes to his brother John's Hamlet, the Macduff to his Macbeth, Cassio to his Othello, not really a leading man at all, at least during his twenties and thirties. Later he assumed leading roles, as we'll see. The actor William Charles MacReady, who was a leading man, once described Charles Kemble rather snidely as a, quote, first-rate actor of second-rate parts. Ouch. But still, Charles Kemble was a Kemble, and he could always find work when he wanted it. In 1806, Charles Kemble married a vivacious French-Austrian actress and dancer named Marie-Thérèse de Camp, who was also very popular on the London stage in her day, and together they ran a happy household that was filled with visits from other famous actors, poets, and writers. They had four children together, and their daughter, Frances Anne, arrived in November of 1809. 
Her parents were often busy, touring the provinces and so forth, so, like many young children of the Regency era, young Fanny, as everyone called her, was sent away to school. First to a girl's school, run by yet another Kemble sister in England, and then to another school, this one in Paris. Fanny proved to be a precocious and strong-willed child from the very beginning, and she showed a distinct inclination to physical activity and to mischief, too. On one occasion, the little English girl climbed out onto the Parisian school roof and skipped happily about on the tiles high above the city until an alarmed person passing by alerted the faculty. Ah, it can only be that devil of a Campbell, exclaimed her exasperated teacher. But at this school, she learned flawless French herself. She learned how to dance. She learned how to sing and to sew and how to devour endless novels and romantic poetry like that of Lord Byron. She also showed an inclination to write herself. And by the time she had returned to England from France at the age of 19 in the late 1820s, she had already published a play about King Francis I of France. Indeed, she was a budding and a passionate intellectual, much interested in English society and in politics, and unlike almost all the rest of her family, she never really imagined a future for herself on the stage at any point. A teenage bout with smallpox had left her complexion looking a little rough and pockmarked, and although she loved parties and dances as much as any young woman, she never saw herself as a great beauty. But her father had recently taken over the management and shares of Covent Garden from his brothers just at that unfortunate moment when plays and theatres were beginning to become less popular and falling on hard times. His new position, in fact, was bankrupting him. Notices from creditors were pasted all over the theatre's front door. Fanny, helpfully, considered becoming a governess to support her parents in the midst of this financial crisis. But instead, her mother suddenly asked her, had she ever thought she might have some talent for the stage? She gave it a try, and it turned out that Fanny's voice was strong, strong enough to fill even the cavernous Covent Garden auditorium. So, after just a few weeks of rehearsal, suddenly, Fanny found herself going on as Juliet in Romeo and Juliet in the most prestigious theatre in London, supported, admittedly, by her father playing Mercutio and her mother as Lady Capulet. It turned out that Fanny Kemble had an innate and instinctive talent for the stage. Her strong and low voice and her dramatic personality carried all the way to the back row of many theatres. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name, or if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's Montague? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called. Retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. Romeo, doff thy name, and for thy name, which is not part of thee, take all myself. 
The production of Romeo and Juliet was an immediate success, and Fanny suddenly found herself repeating the role of Juliet 31 times that season alone, and was soon branching out and learning many other leading parts as eager playwrights showered her with their works. She was soon earning 30 pounds a week, performing to adoring London audiences, and was dancing at society balls and indulging her passion for horseback riding around Hyde Park on a regular basis. For three years, she was the toast of London every season and toured the provinces every summer, just as her aunt Sarah Siddons and her uncle John Philip Kemble had done before her. Her portrait was painted by Sir Thomas Lawrence. She did roles far beyond her years, such as Queen Catherine in Henry VIII and Lady Macbeth. She even got her play, Francis I, staged, and it was well received. She had ideas for more plays, and she wanted to write. She began turning out poetry as well. But Covent Garden audiences mostly showed up in droves only on the nights Fanny was playing, it turned out. Her attraction alone couldn't subsidize the entire establishment, and the family fortunes were still maddeningly insecure. So, it was decided that what they really needed to do was what almost every other star of the English stage was doing at that time, make a tour of America and milk the theaters there for every dollar they could and then return home with the proceeds. Her father's plan, in fact, was to extricate himself from Covent Garden entirely and then to retire on whatever fortune he and Fanny could pile up in America. Fanny agreed to this plan, perhaps as much to escape her difficult mother, who was staying behind, as to help out her father. Her mother's unmarried sister, Adelaide, known to the family as Aunt Dal, agreed to come along as a chaperone. Furthermore, Fanny planned to keep and write a careful journal of her travels, a young Englishwoman's thoughts and observations about America, and that she could then publish that journal and add the proceeds to her own growing bank account. In the summer of 1832, Charles and Fanny and Aunt Dal landed in New York, and the Kembles brought their repertoire to the Park Theatre in Lower Manhattan just across from City Hall. Unfortunately, the actor, who was named Mr. Keppel, uh, that they engaged to do Romeo and other young romantic parts opposite Fanny, immediately proved to be entirely inadequate. He was clumsy, he kept forgetting his lines, and in desperation he would simply drop to his knees and wait for Fanny to cue him. So the hapless Keppel was let go, and instead... Charles Kemble stepped in as the Romeo to his daughter's Juliet. Now, nowadays, we might find it a bit odd to watch a father playing the lover to his young daughter on the stage, but actually, you know, in the 19th century, they kind of liked that sort of thing. It allowed people to listen to the poetry and feel the passion without any hint that there was actual sexual activity going on off the stage. A few years later, the actress Charlotte Cushman, as we shall see, would make a hit as Romeo, acting with her own sister playing Juliet, which people would like even better, it turned out. But the Kemble family, in our story today, managed to please the New York audiences quite satisfactorily, and no one was worried about whether the supporting cast was any good. The poet Walt Whitman 
then working as a newspaper man in Brooklyn, came to see the Kembles perform every night and pronounced himself utterly ravished by Fanny's charms and talents. In her time off stage, Fanny scribbled furiously away at her journal project whenever she could, making a lot of snarky remarks about American food, American manners, and American fashions. She also noted that in the audience she played to in New York, there might be only 20 women in the dress circle out of the entire theater, and that the men thronging the pit always seemed to keep their hats on. Like many actresses, she also felt the pressure of the thousands of appraising and sometimes lascivious male gazes most keenly. When she was invited to New York dinner parties, she tended to avoid the flocks of young men gawping away at her, and she never stopped to flirt with them in idle chatter, and instead chose to talk directly with the older married men about politics and art, which people thought was quite astounding at the time. And although she knew full well that she and her father were being quite well paid for their performances, she also knew that the local New York stock company actors were not. But in her estimation, of course, in quality, they were mere sticks, she declared. The whole situation, in fact, confirmed her low opinion of the entire profession of acting. It was an unseemly way of making money, it seemed to her, all this living out of hotels and trading on her youth and beauty for men she didn't even know. It was not like the literary life she longed for. Nonetheless, she had committed to at least two years playing in the best theaters in America for the sake of her dear papa. The next stop on their tour was Philadelphia. After what she described as a most uncomfortable journey over both land and water, Fanny Kemble and her father and Aunt Dahl arrived in Philadelphia in mid-October 1832. They stayed at the Mansion House Hotel at Chestnut and Third Street, the most elegant and fashionable hotel in town at the time, but even it did not offer the amenity of indoor baths. Fanny, wanting to clean up after her journey, was driven instead to a local public bathhouse near Washington Square, and was astonished to find two bathtubs standing side by side in the room she was showed to. Americans didn't like to do anything alone, she tartly wrote in her journal. But she liked Philadelphia, she decided immediately. To her, it compared most favorably to New York. After rehearsal, I walked about the town. I like this town extremely. There is a look of comfort and cleanliness and withal of age about it, which pleases me. It is quieter, too, than New York, and though not so gay, for that very reason is more to my fancy. The shops, too, have far better appearance. New York always gave me the idea of an irregular collection of temporary buildings, erected for some casual purpose, full of life, animation, and variety, but not meant to endure for any length of time. This place has a much more substantial, sober, and city-like appearance. But she was still worried about the Philadelphians' behavior as an audience. Would they even come? The Kembles were contracted to play a dozen or so shows from their repertoire at the Chestnut Street Theater, using the stock company there as their supporting players. They knew they were up against the competition of Philadelphia's own Edwin Forrest himself, who was at that moment playing his entire repertoire over at the New Arch Street Theater a few blocks away, with its proudly all-American company. 
Fanny had seen Forrest play in New York, and besides being impressed by the sheer size of him, she was also impressed by the enthusiastic noise of all his fans. Over at the Chestnut Street Theater, the older, genteel Philadelphia crowd had largely been deserting the theater entirely of late, but as it turned out, the magic of the Kemble name was enough to fill the theater's seats. The first night, Charles Kemble performed without her as Hamlet, and Fanny sat prominently watching him from a box where everyone could get a good look at her. And that was enough to whet the fans' appetites for her Philadelphia debut a few nights later in Fazio, an 1815 tragedy by Henry Hart Millman. Fanny played Bianca, a young lady bent on revenge for her husband's supposed infidelity. Oh, the theater was crowded with fashion and with beauty that night, reported historian Charles Durang, and they were astounded by what they witnessed. Quote, A breathless silence pervaded the entire audience. Miss Kemble came in as a lady would enter into her own parlor, with quiet elegance and polish to receive her guests. The manner was novel, for conventionalities of the stage were entirely absent. When the progress of the scene brought out the passions of the soul in all their various moods, the fearful energy with which she depicted the emotions of jealousy and rage were intense to a degree that the audience did not anticipate. In her first quiet scenes, all was hush as death. It was only at each approaching climax that the feelings of the excited audience burst forth as ecstasies. She had a flashing black eye. Her voice was sweet and musical, well attuned by the elocutionary rules. Close quotes. But it was evidently the quality of her intelligence that really filled Fanny's every moment on the stage, Durang decided. Quote, the tone and tendency of Miss Kemble's mind are of the masculine, both in her acting and her very able literary productions, abounding in strength and originality of thought. So, a successful debut in the Quaker City. But not according to Fanny herself. In her journal that night, she wrote that her voice had croaked horribly during the performance of Fazio due to a cold she had caught, and her costume was lacking some extra ornamentation that she had asked for, and that her leading man's horrible false whiskers had dripped dye down the side of his face all evening long. Furthermore, she had been mortified by the audience's rapt and mostly silent attention. They were the most unapplausive audience she had ever played to, she said. They were attentive, certainly, but, oh, they did make her work for it. Now, admittedly, Fanny was never complimentary of her own acting in her journals and letters. Even a show that sent her audiences into apparent raptures would receive a verdict from her of just fair but she was very pleased when the next day she came down to tea at the hotel and found a handsome young man she had never met before sitting with her father, wanting to be introduced. The young man was quite genteel, allowed Fanny, a, a year younger than her, true, but well-spoken, and evidently very, very rich indeed. But best of all, 
He asked her to ride with him the next day. Fanny adored riding. She had been much annoyed by the bad quality of the horses in New York. The young man said he knew where the best mounts in Philadelphia could be found. The young man, as it turned out, was one Pierce Mees Butler of the Philadelphia Butlers. He had been tipped off by a friend from New York that he really should go and see the divine Miss Kemble when she came to town. And like other American young men that year, when they first saw Fanny on stage, he was immediately smitten. The wealthy Pierce Butler at least did not have to pawn his coat or his watch, like other desperate young admirers were said to be doing, in order to afford theater tickets to see Fanny perform again. Instead, he hurried to the Chestnut Street box office, just two blocks from his own family's mansion, and bought tickets for the next night's performance of Romeo and Juliet. Charles Kemble, once again, was Romeo, and our old friend William Wood, the former manager of the theater, played Mercutio. Once again, the crowds nearly burst the limits of the chestnut seating area, and despite the competition from Edwin Forrest over at the Arch once again, and once again, nobody really seemed to mind the odd spectacle of a father in his fifties playing a young man falling in love with a young woman played by his own daughter in her early twenties. The acting was just too exquisite to bother about such things. The critic of the journal The Dramatic Mirror allowed that, quote, Miss Kemble, in the estimation of the audience, more than justified the encomiums showered upon her in London and New York, she proved herself to be a tragedienne of extraordinary powers and genius, most richly endowed with gifts of nature which no art can supply. Close quotes. But to her own mind, once again, Fanny felt that the audience was unresponsive and that her performance was decidedly subpar. Oh, she upbraided herself in her journal. I acted like a wretch, of course. How could I do otherwise? Oh, Juliet, vision of the south, rose of the garden of the earth. Was this the glorious hymn that Shakespeare hallowed to your praise? Was this the mingled strain of love's sweet going forth, and death's dark victory over which my heart and soul have been poured out in wonder and in ecstasy? What a mass of wretched mumming mimicry acting is! She could at least take consolation in one pleasant fact. Every day throughout her stay, a lovely bouquet of flowers was delivered to her room, with a card saying they were from a friend. For several weeks she thought they were from a shy Quaker, but eventually she learned that it was that nice Mr. Butler. He was also a reliable riding companion on the excursions up and down the Schuylkill River Valley, where they would canter up to the Laurel Hill estate together, loyal Aunt Dal coming along on her own horse as a discreet chaperone. Sometimes, though, on evenings when she was not playing, Fanny and her father would go on long nighttime walks together, over the bridges, crossing the Schuylkill, into the rural sectors of West Philadelphia, coming back together and strolling down Market Street, where the barrels of wine and whiskey were piled up overnight outside the city's drinking establishments. They shared together the impish desire to poke a hole in every one and let the spirits flood the entire town. When they returned to work at the theater, the crowds kept coming to see them. Sheridan's School for Scandal, in which Fanny played Lady Teasel, Otway's Venice Preserved, in which she played the role of Belvedere, 
Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, where she played Beatrice to Charles's Benedict, and The Stranger by Kotzebue, The Hunchback by Sheridan Knowles. Success after success, Philadelphia booksellers were peddling engraved prints of her in their stores, and Philadelphia's artists crowded the front rows of the pit every night, furiously sketching away as she acted on the stage, and then they rushed back to their studios to turn out finished paintings of her image, which were snapped up by the adoring public. Even before they left town, after a final performance of Romeo and Juliet, the Kembles had already negotiated a return engagement in just a couple months. Her only worry was what would poor young Mr. Butler do in his time now that she was gone. It, he never seemed to work much at his supposed law practice, but he was always available to be her faithful escort to local parties and receptions. An accomplished flute player, Mr. Butler had started sitting in with the theater's orchestra every night, Gazing up at her with quiet devotion, it was all too touching. She was sorry to leave Philadelphia, Fanny thought, even if the audiences were far too reserved. There was an air of stability about the place, and in the highest praise she could ever say about any place, she allowed that it reminded her of England. During the Kemble's tour, down to Baltimore and Washington, D.C., however, there were some very upsetting scandals. A rumor was started by someone that Fanny had insulted America in some way or another. Now, throughout the 1830s and 40s, there were often little mini-uproars over something some British writer or celebrity had said or written about the roughness or rudeness or lack of culture in American Republic, and these alleged statements of Fanny's were just more fuel to the fires of patriotic American outrage. Her performances in Washington were almost spoiled by it in her mind, she detected a distinct hostility in the crowds of politicians from the South who had the additional grudge that young Fanny had sometimes expressed some reservations about the institution of slavery. She was relieved to leave America's disputatious capital city and return once again to the pleasant mansion house in Philadelphia, where she once again treated herself to the local frozen delicacy known as water ice. Best of all, it seemed the Philadelphia audiences had really taken her side when they heard about what had happened down in Washington. After the Christmas Day performance the Kembles gave at the Chestnut of Macbeth, Fanny was startled by what she considered the odd custom of the audience standing and applauding her after the show was over until she came out to take a bow, which seems like an odd thing to complain about, but then, remember... The curtain call, which you may remember we first saw in Philadelphia back in 1820 in response to the performance of Edmund Keane, was still rather unusual and scorned by many in the theatrical world. And then, on December 30th, every entrance of hers was met with a veritable storm of applause. The play was The Merchant of Venice, my father's benefit. The house was crammed from floor to ceiling as full as it could hold. At the end, the people shouted and shrieked for us. Father went on and made them a speech, and I went on and made them a curtsy. And certainly, they do deserve the civilest of speeches and the lowest of curtsies from us, for they have behaved most kindly and courteously to us. And for mine own good part, I love the whole city of Philadelphia from this time forth, forevermore. And it's true, the ardent theatre-goers in Philadelphia had taken the Kimballs to their own hearts. And 
so had the Society of Local Philadelphia Actors. Now that itself had taken some doing because of the natural reluctance among theater folk to welcome yet another set of visiting British stars who were swanning in to grab a big pile of money and then get out of town. But it was Charles Kemble's respectful treatment of such long-time and beloved Philadelphia actors as William Wood and his wife, Juliana Westray Wood, that really won people over. At the beginning of the new year of 1833, the entire company was transferring its operations to the Walnut Street Theater, which was then under the same management as the Chestnut. Wood, still struggling financially, asked the Kembles if they would appear at the Walnut with him in a performance of School for Scandal that was scheduled for his benefit performance and offered them their usual fees to do so. Charles Kemble declined, and Wood's face momentarily fell, but then rose again instantly with the English star's counter-offer. "'Miss Kemble and myself will feel gratified in aiding your object, only on one condition, that no remuneration of any kind to us shall be mentioned or thought of.' Well. The performance went on under those generous terms, and Mrs. Wood, in fact, gave her farewell performance in Philadelphia ever in that play. William Wood, needless to say, had nothing but nice things to say about the Kembles in his autobiography, and from that point on, he noticed that a better quality of people, real Philadelphia society, had once again made their appearances in the audience of both the Chestnut and the Walnut to see the Kembles, which they had not, for many years previously. Admittedly, this warming trend of Philadelphia's elite accepting actors as being decent people was nonetheless a reluctant one. It helped when an eminent Philadelphia family, like the Biddles, asked the Kimballs over for dinner, but only to a degree. Actors were still tradesmen, and the visits in the not-too-distant past of such renowned rakes as George Frederick Cook and Edmund Keane had done little to improve actors' moral reputations. And there was a sneaking suspicion amongst Philadelphia society about how much time young Pierce Butler was keeping in Fanny Kemble's company. Could he not keep all that lovely money that he was about to inherit amongst their own kind and marry some other local society girl? Well, evidently not. As the months went on, his attentions to Fanny never faltered. It was generally assumed that they had an understanding about their future together now, although nothing was openly said. When the Kembles returned to New York for another engagement, Butler followed them there. When they went to Boston, a town full of young men, everyone stood clear of Mr. Butler. He had family connections down south, they heard, and those were dueling people. So the Harvard boys all lined the streets to watch Fanny pass, going to and from the theater in the evening, and they devotedly serenaded her at the stage door, but it was understood that she rode out on excursions with the flute player from Philadelphia only. When the Kembles made a trip across upstate New York to go see Niagara Falls, Pierce Butler tagged along, making himself useful by bringing along a full set of forks, which he knew were items of cutlery not generally available in the back country of America. And he was nearby when Fanny's Aunt Dal passed away in Boston having never recovered from an injury she suffered when the party's stagecoach had overturned on the return journey from Niagara. It was in Boston, 
after Aunt Dahl had been laid to rest in Mount Auburn Cemetery, that Fanny Kemble and Pierce Butler finally became formally engaged. Charles Kemble was amenable to the match, though it had been his plan that Fanny would perform at least one more year before leaving the acting profession entirely. The Kembles had cleared at least $35,000 from all their efforts, quite a considerable amount, but he was only going to receive half of that, and it wasn't enough to buy him out of Covent Garden and let him retire. They still had return engagements booked in both New York and Philadelphia, and then could not Fanny perform for at least one more year in London before the marriage actually took place, he asked. And this was when Pierce Butler began at last to show the elements of his nature that were perhaps a foreshadowing of what was to come. Pierce Butler had always been incredibly vague about exactly where his family fortune came from, and he had a tendency to promise to do things and then somehow forget to do them and then renegotiate the terms. After initially agreeing to let Fanny go back to England for one more year on the stage before marrying or after the wedding, he suddenly had a different idea. Well, they should get married now and she could immediately retire from the stage. After all, Fanny had always said she wanted to give up acting, and now she could. She could give Charles all of the $35,000, and he would take care of Fanny as his wife. He had ten times as much money, after all, and more coming his way soon. He would even arrange for his family to send substantial sums to her mother and aunts in England for their old age. Oh, wedded bliss awaited and a happy and secure life in lovely old Philadelphia was in her future, the city that would be her new home. Fanny and Charles agreed to this plan. Perhaps they would have hesitated if poor old Aunt Dahl were still alive. Aunt Dahl had often made it clear to Fanny how much the marriage laws of the day made a woman, both in England and America, the ward of their husbands, without any independent financial or legal means and that perhaps an unmarried life was to be preferred if one wanted financial, social, and intellectual independence. But Aunt Dahl was gone, and Fanny's friends in Boston could think of no real objection to the marriage or any better life plan for her. Fanny needed to settle down so she could become the writer she always wanted to be, they decided. And after all, Pierce was right there. He was so handsome and attractive and so kind and so very very rich. And perhaps after years of courtship, Fanny was more than ready for the physical side of marriage as well, and so she consented. In April of 1834, as the end of her single life approached, Fanny acted in some good-hearted farces and comedies that made gleeful light of her situation with such titles as The Wedding Day and then The Day After the Wedding. And on June 7th, 1834, an actual wedding took place at Christ Church, an Episcopal congregation on 2nd Street in Philadelphia. A beautiful old church building even then. It still stands today, so you could easily visit where Francis Ann Kemble became Francis Ann Butler. Interestingly, the wedding was not a big theatrical production. In those pre-Queen Victoria days, that was not yet a common thing to do, even amongst the wealthy and prominent folk in England and America. Nor was there an immediate honeymoon planned. 
In fact, the ceremony was sandwiched between Fanny's two farewell performances to the stage, one in Philadelphia and then one in New York. The role she was performing in these final shows was not Juliet or Beatrice or any light-hearted comedy, but a tragedy, The Hunchback by James Sheridan Knowles. I don't think I've seen this noted anywhere in any of the many biographies that have been published about Fanny Kemble's life. But if you examine the text of The Hunchback, there isn't much celebration of marriage in it. In fact, the character of Julia, late in the play, has an ominous-sounding soliloquy. After she agrees to marry a man she does not truly love. A wedded bride? Is it a dream? Is it a phantasm? Tis too horrible for reality, for aught else too palpable. Oh, would it were a dream! How would I bless the sun that waked me from it? I perish! like some desperate mariner impatient of a strange and hostile land, who rashly hoists his sail and puts to sea, and being fast on the reefs and quicksands born, essays in vain once more to make the land whence wind and current drive him. I'm wrecked by mine own act. What? No escape. No hope. None. I must e'en abide these hated nuptials. He comes. Thou display the lady, play it now. Fanny was about to learn what it really cost to play the lady, and at what price her financial security had been bought. After she had acted in her last play, and had seen her father off on the boat back to England, the realities of her new life suddenly became clear to her, but within a few months after her marriage, she was writing a frantic note to a trusted friend back in England with some awful news. The new Mrs. Fanny Butler was the wife of a slave owner. In fact, she was the wife of one of the largest slave owners in America. Pierce Butler had inherited large plantations in the sea islands of Georgia from his grandfather. How could she not have known? How could she never have asked? How could Pierce have never told her? But that was the truth. Oh, she would rather go back to the toilsome earning of her daily bread in the theater, she declared. It was a disreputable business, but at least the labor was honest, and not drawn from the blood and the tears of the enslaved. But now she looked around, and literally everything she saw, she realized, was soiled with slavery. She was literally being fed and clothed by human beings who owned nothing in this world at all, not even their own bodies. Pierce Butler owned them. That's where we will leave it for today. But don't worry, folks, there is more to come. Our next episode will follow the amazing story of Fanny Kimball in Philadelphia and how she helped to change the world she found herself in. And we'll take it all the way to the conclusion. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you're just joining in. You won't want to miss it. I'm Peter Schmitz, and the sound and the music are by Christopher Mark Colucci, the voice of Fanny Kemble was performed by Jessica Bedford. As always, there are additional images, blog posts, and bibliographies about this episode and all the others on our website, www.aithpodcast.com. Thanks for coming along on another adventure in theater history, Philadelphia. Philadelphia. <laughs>
Hi folks, another post-show announcement. First of all, I'd like to thank Robert, who recently signed up to be an ongoing supporter of the show on Patreon. Bless you, Robert, not only for your contribution, but for lending us your experience and your erudition as well. If you would like to help support the show, like Robert has done, and keep the podcast going, go to Patreon and check out the extra blog posts and bonus episodes you can find there. And if you'd like to send along just one quick one-time donation, hey, we're also on buymeacoffee.com. The links are in the show notes. You can also follow us on our Facebook page and on our Twitter feed. We post almost every day. And there are going to be announcements about our upcoming Philadelphia Theater History Walking Tour in October. You don't want to miss that. Finally, you may have noticed it's been three weeks since our last episode, not our usual two-week interval. This gives me a good opportunity to let you know that in the future, this podcast will be scheduled two episodes per calendar month rather than having us try to crank them out every two weeks. Uh, The research, the writing, and the sound editing that goes into every episode might just otherwise wear us down, and we want to stay fresh. So we've decided to tweak things just a little bit in the future. We might even shift to a once a month for these intensively researched episodes and begin to blend in some more shows that feature interviews with other historians or significant people from the history of theater in Philadelphia. We'll see about that. Just giving everybody a heads up. Okay, that's all I wanted to add. Take care of yourselves, everyone, and thank you for listening. Bye-bye.